You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Switched On podcast. I'm Anne Delaney. Thanks for joining me. Electrification is acknowledged by Australia's and the world's energy experts as being essential for the world to get to zero emissions in the fastest possible time. And if you've been watching the extraordinary temperature records being constantly broken by the extreme weather around the world, you'll know that getting to net zero has never been more important. Net zero, though, means we have to get rid of gas. Not regarded as a transition fuel, as some of our governments have, and some still do. It means getting rid of it. Earlier this year, the Grattan Institute published a really interesting report, Getting Off Gas, Why, How and Who Should Pay? The report recognised that getting rid of gas won't be easy for governments or consumers, but delaying the process is only going to make it harder. And they recommended governments need to prioritise two things. Set a date when no new gas connections will be allowed. And second, set a date by which all existing connections will be phased out. The ACT has done both. New gas connections will be banned from November and existing gas connections phased out by 2045. And Victoria has just recently followed suit and announced a ban on new connections from January 2024. Alison Reeve is the Deputy Director of the Energy and Climate Change Program at the Grattan Institute and is one of the authors of the Getting Off Gas report. And I started my discussion with Alison by asking what she thought of Victoria's ban. This is a necessary decision for Victoria to take if they want to meet their, not just their 2045 net zero target, but the very challenging interim targets that they've got as well. It isn't, you know, the number of new homes that are added every year is quite small compared to the number of total homes. But what it means is that they're not actively making the problem worse. And that's a really positive thing. Mm. The next thing really that they have to do is to think about what is the final date on which they want to say no more use of residential gas within Victoria um, because that then gives everyone who's not building a new home something that they know that they need to work towards. How long do you think that period should be? It's a good question and I mean I, I think it depends on what you think other sectors are going to do to reduce their emissions to help Victoria get to their target. Um, Obviously, I think the latest it can be is 2045 because that's the date they've set for net zero. Um, The other thing is that there's a couple of replacement cycles for appliances between now and 2045. So if you want people to do this when their existing appliance breaks, um, you have got a little bit of time. But the thing is that that time is reducing every day. And once you get to a point where there aren't any more replacement cycles left, then you're actually talking about quite draconian measures that governments would need to take if they wanted to get everybody off gas, or they would have to accept that they're not going to meet their target. What sort of draconian measures do you think that would would mean? I think that's where you'd get into um, 
things like they did in the 1970s with heating where they just banned the use of oil for heating and said, no, if you want to have a heater, you have to put in a natural gas heater. Um, so that'd be that'd be the sort of thing that you would be starting to talk about. And I think that a lot of people would, would probably resist that because you are taking away their choice. The way that you maximise people's choices around this mm. decision is to give them as much time as possible to think about what's the right option for them. Yes, exactly. The, the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, has responded to the Victorian ban by ruling out bans in New South Wales. He said he doesn't need another complication and the state has enough serious energy challenges. What's your response to that? I can understand why he says that because they are facing some challenges, as are all states, but eventually they are going to have to deal with the problem. And what we have seen in New South Wales is New South Wales has actually had gas connections growing quite fast. Um, so I think the sooner that they can turn their minds to thinking about what is the best option for New South Wales in terms of getting gas out of residential homes, the better for everyone who lives in New South Wales. Because they, they have relatively less gas currently in New South Wales homes. Chris Minns says it's only 7%. That's right. Um, that's because you have much less gas heating in New South Wales because it's just not as cold as it is in Victoria. Um, but if you think through the logistics of just the number of homes that you would need to switch over, to change their minds, to make their decisions, to find the money, to get around some of the barriers that we've talked about in the podcast, um, that challenge is still quite large, even if the amount of emissions that are coming from gas and the amount of gas that's consumed in New South Wales is small relative to other states. Mm. Just tell me, why, why do you think bans on new gas connections are so important? It means that I, I guess the best way to think of it is if you're in if you're in a hole, the first thing you should do is stop digging. So <laughs> it, it means you're not making the problem worse. It, you know, when you put a ban on new connections, you're stopping the network from expanding. Um, and that means you're now dealing with a bounded problem. And that's a lot easier for policymakers. And it's also, I think, a lot easier for households because it means that they now know that if they're buying or building a new house, they know what they're going to get. And they don't need to make choices anymore. Mm. And the gas industry knows that it's, its time is coming up. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it is actually, in my view, it's useful for the gas industry to know that there is, that the network isn't going to grow and that there is an end date because they need to change their business in a way that's orderly. Otherwise, that's going to be very disruptive for, for their shareholders and very disruptive for their customers. And so the more certainty that there is about the direction that we're going in, I think the better actually in the long term it is for the gas companies, even if we accept that they are going to be smaller and less lucrative companies in the future. Alison, a large part of your recent getting off gas report is really focused on what governments should be doing for us all to get off gas. Can we get off gas if government doesn't take a leadership role and make some changes to enable this to happen? We can, but it'll be, I think, a messy and potentially quite inequitable process. So what we called for really is to say, well, well, I mean, first, I guess there's a couple of things here, right? The first one is that it's 
very hard for anybody to hit any net zero target if you still have very widespread use of gas in the economy and particularly if you have it in homes. So you do need to get off at some point. There are informed people like the sort of people who listen to to Renew Economies podcast a lot would be the sort of people who have started to do that process themselves. Um, But there are also large chunks of households um, for whom it's actually not really an easy process. And that's where there is definitely a role for government to step in. And then the other role for government is to make sure this happens in a sort of a fairly orderly way so that it's done at the least cost to everybody and also so that you're not left with a situation where everyone who can afford it has gotten off gas and everyone who can't is still stuck with it. How much does gas account for Australia's carbon emissions at the moment? So overall emissions from producing and using gas are about 22% of Australia's emissions. The bit from the residential sector is very small. Um, The biggest chunk of emissions that come from the production and use of gas actually come from the gas industry itself. So those are the fugitive emissions that escape during the process of extracting and transporting gas. It's the emissions that are produced by the gas industry burning its own gas to power its own processes. Um, That's particularly the case for LNG exports. The next biggest uses are in electricity and industrial, and then you come down to residential, and residential is very small. Um, But the way that I think of this is you've got a small number of of, um, entities who are large users of gas, and you've got a large number of very small ones. Um, And those large entities are you know, they're, they're, I guess that if we're talking about regulating and changing their pattern of emissions, the way that that is done is through things like the safeguard mechanism, mm. um, the shift to 82% renewables by 2030 and so on. When you start to talk about that small number, uh, sorry, that large number of very small users, that starts to get very logistically difficult because you have to deal with a lot of just individual homeowners who are using gas and a lot of them probably quite like using gas and have probably not thought about changing. Yes, and I mean, how many of them are there? Um, Using network gas, so getting natural gas um, through a pipe that comes to a house, is about 5 million households in Australia. In Obviously in the colder states like Victoria and the ACT, um, households who have gas tend to have all three things, so cooking, heating and water heating. Um, gas water heating actually is pretty popular in a lot of states. Um, that is partly because a lot of people like instantaneous gas water heaters because you never run out of hot water. It's also partly because there were quite a few regulatory nudges that pushed people towards using gas for water heating because it was actually the best um, environmental outcome for a long time, particularly if you couldn't afford a solar system. But you also found that a a majority of people who already have a gas water heater, they're going to replace it with another gas water heater when it goes down or it breaks. In fact, I I was intrigued to read the statistic of 89% of them, in in fact. Um, I'm presuming that's because people generally make a quick decision when their water heaters conk out and they need a hot shower. Absolutely. I I think that's that's exactly what happens. You know, when you get up in the morning and there's no hot water, you grab that fridge magnet on your fridge of like, you know, water heaters are us or something. You ring them up and they say, what have you got now? And they come around and they replace it with what you've got now um, within the day. And that's, you know, that's great. No one wants to sort of have two weeks 
of cold showers while you're waiting for a different type of water heater. I think the other thing that happens too um, in rental properties, um, a broken water heater is considered an urgent repair. Mm. And that means the landlord has to like get onto it straight away. They're not allowed to delay it. They can end up in the, um, you know, being taken to the um, the tribunal, uh, the rental tribunal mm. if they don't do it. So there's also a very strong nudge to them there to do a like for like replacement because it's quicker and easier. The, the other thing too, I think, particularly with water heaters is that um, different types of water heaters take up different amounts of space. And so when you are switching to a different type of water heater, if you haven't thought ahead about how much space that's going to do, how much it's going to take, um, it's hard to make that decision quickly. Mm. So so what do you think needs to be done to encourage the, the change to electric options, but particularly something like a, um, a, a water heater? Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, part of the part of the problem here as well is that sometimes the efficient electric um, alternative costs you more than the gas one does. That's that is definitely the case with water heaters. It costs more to buy a heat pump than to buy a gas water heater. Um, so helping people to fill that cost gap is important. Um, but the other thing I think is that I mean. We, we need to make this shift eventually and we it is good to do to make this shift at the point where things break um, because we have actually got time you know between now and the various net zero target dates to replace appliances at the point where they break rather than take out ones that are new and, and already working but people need I think a lot of help with the idea that a they're going to be asked to make this change and that they want to be able to plan ahead for it. So what that might mean is that, you know, if you have a water heater that's 12 years old and, you know, that means that the likelihood of it breaking is getting greater, you might not wait exactly until it breaks, but you might decide, okay, over the next two or three years, we're going to find the money to replace that with the electric one. And that means we can do all the work to figure out, have we got enough space? Are we going to have to drill a few extra holes for pipes in the walls? Um, you know, have we? Do we need an extra breaker in our switchboard or, or whatever that stuff is? And do it in a way that fits in with everything else that's going on in your life. The thing is that for people to do that, they need a clear signal from government about what the long term future looks like, so that they can plan. You know, we 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 all have very busy lives. We all would rather think about things other than our business. <laughs> Um, and so we just don't we don't think about it and we don't plan for it because we haven't had to you're listening to the switched on podcast i'm ann delaney and my guest today is alison reeve from the grattan institute and we're talking about getting off gas banning new gas connections might sound like it'll only create a small dent on the actual number of gas households given we have about five million existing connections but one of the problems we're facing is new gas connections are actually growing. At the moment, um, across sort of the four big southern states that use gas, there are more people joining the gas network every year than there are disconnecting from it. And so that means the net, you know, the, the customer base is growing. Once you actually start to say no, the customer base is definitely going to shrink and the size of the asset is going to shrink, then you can actually have a sensible policy conversation 
about what do you need to do and when and who's going to do what and how much money is it going to take and who's going to pay. It's very hard to have that conversation if you haven't actually picked a goal date and you haven't actually said, no, we are no longer keeping other options like hydrogen, for example, open. As you say, one of the problems is that people are still connecting to gas. Uh, are we ahead or are we going backwards? Some people are, are clearly coming off. They wanted to disconnect. Are more people leaving the gas network than joining? So the number of people leaving every year is increasing, but the number of people joining every year is also increasing and it is increasing faster than the number of people leaving, if that makes Why sense. Why is that? Um, so some of it is because I think until this year in the ACT in Victoria, new homes had to have a gas connection and that provided quite a strong incentive for property developer to put in gas appliances. And so when people bought new homes, they just had gas appliances yes. in them. Um, so there's that. Um, there were, um, particularly in New South Wales, I think, some nudges from the state government to say that gas is better for the environment because the um, until quite recently, the electricity in New South Wales was so carbon intensive that that was the case. Um, it's now not the case everywhere except Victoria um, that you are doing, you know, doing more for the environment by using gas than using electricity. So I think there were those two things. I think the other thing too is that often, you know, some people like yeah. gas, I guess. I think particularly for cooking um, and there's some evidence, for example, um, for what people search for when they're looking for a new house. Um, there's some evidence that people search for has gas um, and that might be, you know, it's hard to know what that's linked to. It's hard to know whether that's people who love gas per se or they like cooking on gas or it's important to them for another reason. Um, yeah, so there's kind of myriad reasons and some of them are I think strongly held preferences and I think some of them are just um, things that really people haven't made as a conscious choice but it's just like well that's just how things yes, are. Yes, yes. I mean it's interesting looking at gas stoves and you, you look at them in your report. We know that many people are sticking with gas because they prefer cooking on a gas stove. It, I mean if that is the case it, it makes the purchase of an induction stove, for instance, an electric alternative, a really crucial one, doesn't it? When it you know comes to electrifying our homes, if people are hanging on to the gas just to to fire up their stoves. Yeah, and that's it's particularly crucial as well because when you look at what percentage of your gas bill is paying for the pipes to bring the gas to you, and what percentage is actually paying for the gas itself, if you're just using gas for cooking more than 90% of your bill is paying for pipes, not paying for gas. Um, and so you're sort of paying to keep this massive network in order to be able to cook on gas, you know, once or twice a day. Um, one of the interesting things that we found during the, the process of this report is that people are actually quite willing to switch to induction once they've had the opportunity to try it out. Right. Um, we looked at this suburb in Canberra called Gin and Derry, which was Canberra's first all-electric suburb. And one of the things is the property developer who developed it was finding that there were people who were coming out to look at the display homes and then saying, oh, it doesn't have gas, it doesn't have gas cooking, I'm, you know, I'd be hesitant about buying. 
And what they did was they started putting on cooking classes in the display home. So you could go out and look around the display home and then learn with, you know, a chef from a local cafe or restaurant, you know, how to make butter chicken <laughs> on an induction cooktop or how to make a stir fry on an induction cook cooktop or, or all of those sorts of things. And they tracked people's attitudes before and after. And what they found that they got right down to people who'd gone out and done that cooking class, only 5% of people who were hesitant beforehand continued to say, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy in because it doesn't have gas. So I think finding ways for people to do that, um, you know, a kind of a try before you buy mm. thing is really important. I've, I've seen a lot of things online of people sort of encouraging the idea of going and getting one of the little baby induction cooktop, you know, portable ones that yes. you can get from Ikea to try out, you know, figure out which ones of your saucepans work, figure out how the controls work and all of that sort of stuff. And I think that's really important. One of the really interesting things about the history of gas for cooking is that when gas first came into Australian cities, people were very hesitant to cook on gas. And the way that the gas companies persuaded them was exactly the way as I just talked about with induction. They put cooking glasses right. on. They, they invited, you know, in those days, housewives to come down to the display centre and learn how to make a sponge cake in a, um, in a gas oven. <laughs> and and it, it is exactly the same psychology, right? People want to be able to, to try it out for themselves before they jump in and commit to it. It does raise a really interesting issue, doesn't it? Because what you're really saying is that uh, each decision about getting rid of gas, it's a very individual decision and people are going to make those decisions based on their individual needs or their household needs or their family needs, which is quite different to industry making a, a, a decision. They're the big users, yes, of gas, but changing a whole, you know, millions of people's individual behaviour is a really big ask. It is a really big ask. I mean, and I think that's why it's important to approach this as a problem that's like a, a 20 to 25 year problem, because that is the sort of time frame over which norms and preferences change. So if you look at things like, you know, where was it where is it acceptable to smoke or you know when do you use sunscreen and that sort of stuff we changed those norms and and governments had a big role in changing those norms but it took a long time to do that the other thing i, I think i'd sort of say as well is that when you look at the overall task of reducing australia's emissions down to net zero what we've been through with electricity was actually the easy part because most people's lives didn't change you right. know, you still electricity still comes out of your PowerPoints and you, you don't notice anything different in your house. We are now getting into the stuff where it's like the thing that you use in your house is potentially part of the problem and the change then requires potentially that you do something different. It's a little bit different to, you know, something like rooftop solar is like is adding something new and shiny, whereas what we're talking about here is potentially taking away something that you quite like and replacing it with something that you're not sure that you like. And I think that's why it's another reason to approach it slowly because people need time to get used to the idea. And is it just time though, Alison? What else is it gonna take? Oh boy, that's a kind of a long list. <laughs> um, but I think the way that to think about this when particularly when you're thinking about what governments need to do is that they're 
is a role for some level of regulation, but we can't bring that in overnight because the market won't be ready for it. You know, we, we've already got supply chain problems in just about every sector you can um, imagine. And those things, you know, if everyone wanted an induction cooktop overnight, everyone would not be able to get one because the mm. supply chain isn't there. So regulation is potentially something that we do in the future, but ahead of that, we need to do a lot of um, encouragement, communication, put in place financing so that people can, um, you know, one thing I should have said right up front, right, is that you can save money now if you switch from gas to electricity. You will be financially better off. The thing is that those things have the higher upfront costs. So what you want is some kind of financing for that change so that you can actually spread that upfront cost over time. And that's something where I think governments can step in to help develop those financial products that suit the broadest possible range of people. And that helps, I think, to make that decision a lot easier. Um, we also are going to need, you know, more, more electricians. And we also need to think about um, what happens to the jobs of um, plumbers and gas fitters. You know, when we talk about a just transition, often people focus on coal workers or, you know, workers in the in emissions intensive industries. But we are actually, if we go to a future where we're using a lot less and possibly even zero gas, there's a whole cohort of people who currently have that as a job, um, who we should be thinking about how, um, you know, how we do reskilling, how we do retraining and, and so on with them. The final thing I'd say too is that the sort of appliances that we're talking here, so cooktops, water heaters and home heating systems, at the moment they aren't regulated in the way that um, say fridges and washing machines are. So they don't have a star rating label, they don't have a minimum performance standard. And it's really important to do that, to bring those appliances into that regulatory framework. Um, first of all, so that people aren't putting in cheap and crappy electric alternatives that don't save them any money, mm. um, but also so that people don't have a bad experience when they switch. Because one of the things that will really slow this transition down is if a particular technology gets a bad reputation because you've had poor quality appliances being installed and people go, well, I got one, you know, I had one of those heat pumps and it was terrible and I'd never recommend that to anyone else, you know. So that sort of thing making sure that people have a good experience when they switch and that you have high quality appliances that perform well is actually really, really important. And that's something that governments really should focus on doing. Yes. I just want to unpack some of those things you said, because you, you've raised a, a number of issues in that. And, and one of them is obviously the, the cost. The government has recently announced money in the budget for household energy upgrades. Is that enough? I think that at some they announced is they could get a lot more leverage out of it than the 160,000 homes that they announced. The way that I think that could happen is that instead of paying out, you know, a, a billion dollars for 160,000 homes is roughly $9,000 per home. If that money instead was used to de-risk a, um, a green financial product, so like a loan or a mortgage redraw facility or consumer finance or um, something like that with banks, then you could actually get um, a lot more bang for buck, sorry for the pun, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, you could get much more, many, many, many more people upgrading and you would also be building a capacity of the financial sector to finance this sort of stuff, which in the long term is what we need. The other thing, though, is so, that... So basically you don't think that, that, that um, we should all be on the, the government drip feed, so to speak, that it should only be a limited time where they provide subsidies? Is that what you're suggesting? So, the, and, so I, Yeah, I'm saying that the point of the subsidies should be to build um, a market in the finance sector so that the finance sector provides this for you. You know, you should be able to ring up your bank and say, I want to put in a heat pump water heater. You know, what can you do for me on my um, on my mortgage um, to to finance that? And at the moment, you can't do that. Mm. The other thing, though, is that you've got a chunk of people for whom um, getting credit is not going to be a good option. You have a, a chunk of people who may not want to take on debt of any sort and you've also got people who live in public and social housing for public and social housing the government really should just be paying to get those people um ele electrified to get them off gas because it will save those people money and they are some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in the country and so any you know money that we can save them is a good thing um, and in the case of public housing the government is the landlord um, you know, they, they own those buildings. They're responsible for the appliances that are in them. And so it is their responsibility to do the upgrade. You raised also the issue of supply chains. We're going to need a hell of a lot of new electric appliances and, and most of them are going to come from overseas. How do, how do we ensure the supply chain for all these appliances are secured? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I think it's one we're grappling with in lots of different areas in Australia. I mean, I I think one of the things that really helps to shore up a supply chain is when a government makes a definitive statement about what it's doing. Um, and so just to sort of draw a parallel, one of the arguments that comes up again and again around um, vehicle efficiency standards is that the car companies say, if you set that standard, we will send you more electric cars because we know we will be able to sell them. Yes. So similarly, if a government says in the long term, we are going, you know, we are phasing out gas appliances, we are going to want more electric appliances, then, you know, importers or, you know, Harvey Norman or whoever it is, kitchenware companies, plumbing suppliers, whatever else go, okay, I can see that the market is there. So I can go to my suppliers and I can write larger contracts because I know I'm going to be able to sell this stuff. So it's making that definitive statement, which is the first, really the first step to getting a supply chain to build up. Do you think there's any possibility that this might kickstart more of a manufacturing industry in Australia? It's an interesting question. Um, with the appliances that we make in Australia um, on, on the, the gas side, we make um, or at least assemble a lot of the um, water heaters here, particularly storage water heaters because the tanks are bulky and it doesn't make sense to transport those long distances. Um, I think with something like an induction cooktop, that to me feels like it's a, you know, high volume, low margin product, mm -hmm. which would mean Australia has less of an advantage because we have higher labor costs and higher corporate tax compared to say somewhere like China. Um, with heating systems like reverse cycle, like reverse cycle air conditioning and so on, like that is all imported now anyway. 
The stuff that we do do locally tends to be things like if you have ducted heating, we make the ducts here. Um, you know, the, the ceiling vents get made here, the control systems get made here. So there's sort of bits of it that get done here and, and other bits that don't. Mm. We've been discussing electrification, obviously, as the alternative to getting off gas. But is there any alternative other than electrification, in your view? So the ones that come up are um, biomethane and hydrogen. Um, so biomethane is made, it's, it's chemically identical to natural gas, um, but it's made from things like um, sewage, agricultural waste, um, food waste, that sort of stuff. And, and basically when those start to rot down, they produce methane and methane is what we use in natural gas networks. Um, there will be in the overall decarbonisation picture probably a role for biomethane. The thing is that Australia's capacity to produce it um, on the sort of most optimistic um, estimates that people have made, we could probably produce enough biomethane to, to replace one third of the gas that we use in Australia now. Um, and so that means you have to decide what you're doing with the other two thirds. Um, and for a lot of that other two thirds of use, electrification is a better solution, particularly because a lot of the time it's also cheaper. Um, then when it comes to hydrogen, um, hydrogen has been pushed a lot, particularly by the gas network owners, because they want to hang on to the gas network asset and be able to repurpose it. Um, thing about hydrogen is that the cost of it is unlikely to converge with the cost of gas or the cost of using electricity to do the same job until the late 2040s. And that's the Too thing. Too late. Is that, yeah, well, exactly. It's sort of hydrogen's not a drop in in the way that methane is, right? You, If you were going to use a hydrogen stove, you would have to buy um, either a new stove or you would need to get someone to come and refit your existing stove. And that's not something you can do quickly, you know. And if we're talking about, five, you know, the challenge of refitting 5 million homes in 20 years, think about refitting 5 million homes in two years, right? That's, yes. um, that's close to impossible. Um, the, the other thing about hydrogen as well is, you know, the... The cost of it will come down and hydrogen will have a role in overall decarbonisation, but it's likely to be in the industrial sector where electricity can't do the job. And so with both hydrogen and biomethane, given that they're going to be rare and expensive, in, in the overall picture, that means we should be saving them for the things that where we're really going to need them, which is probably in the industrial sector, rather than thinking of them as being this very widespread, you know, thing that we will just switch out um, for things that we use natural gas for now. Australia is in many regards just at the beginning of this electrification journey and we're already getting pushback obviously from the gas industry to the electrification transition. I mean they're claiming the ACT legislation banning new gas connections will result in massive loss of jobs. They're running campaigns suggesting it'll cost $66 billion to electrify Australia. What do you think governments should be doing about this misinformation? Because that's what it is. It is misinformation. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it is misinformation. I mean, I, I think some of the counter to that is to remember that, you know, it's roughly 10 million households in Australia, roughly 2 million of them use LPG, 5 million use natural gas. Um, 
3 million households are already all electric, right? If all of these things were true about how terrible electricity is, that means there's 30% of households have been suffering terribly for the last 20 years. And I don't think that's actually happened. Um, you know, so when we sort of say we're at, we're at the start of the journey, we're at the start of the journey for some people, but other people have been there for years. Yes. Um, and I mean, in terms of the the sort of misinformation problem, I, I mean, I, I, I live in the ACT, so I've seen both the um, the gas industry stuff that's come out in the ACT, but also the stuff the ACT government is doing. And the ACT government is putting a lot of effort into just a, a very consistent consumer communication program that just gives people the same information over and over again about what's going to happen and when you're going to need to do something. And one of the really good things about that is the way that they've pitched it is to say this, you don't have to do this tomorrow. You can do it when you suit, it suits you. And here's a way that you can get resources to plan for that. Um, you know, they, they've made a deal with Choice that if you live in the ACT, you get free access to all of the Choice reports about um, electric appliances, so you can figure out which ones work best. Um, you can go to a website and make an individual plan for your house about when you're going to do this stuff. And I think some of it is just continuing to, um, you know, to communicate consistently. And, I mean, I think the thing that worries me is that um, when this misinformation gets out there, it can be hard to dislodge. And I think the one that I have seen a lot that worries me a bit is when you just go Googling for a plumber and they will often have an FAQ section on their website and there might be a question on there that said, I've heard gas is being banned, is this true? And they will say, no, it's not true. It's going to be replaced by hydrogen. Right. And that is now, and I mean, they've got that information from somewhere and I don't necessarily think it's the role of individual plumbers to, you know, deeply research government policy possibilities but that is kind of some, some of the fact that this misinformation is out there is because we're keeping options open. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why it is important to get clear communication from government about what the direction is, because then it is a lot clearer to consumers what is misinformation and what's not. Just a final question, Alison. There are clearly a lot of hurdles to this transition. How formidable are they and are you hopeful that we're going to get there? Look, it is it is complex, but I think it's doable. And I think the thing is that, um, like, one of the interesting things is when our, our report came out, a lot of the public reaction was like, but what about this? But what about that? You know, what about my particular set of circumstances which make it really, really hard? And it's like, well, that's why we need to work through everybody starting from the seat, you know, starting from the parts where it's easy so that we learn along the way and we get to the, the bits that are hard in the end. You know, things like mm. what you do about apartment buildings, for example, because there's all sorts of different incentives within that that make it more difficult for individuals to make the decision. You have to sort of have collective decisions by the body corporate and that sort of thing. Um, so it's going to be complicated, but the thing is that we've, we've got time um, and particularly we've got time because I think I, I mentioned at the beginning for in Victoria, you need about 200 households a day to switch from gas to being all electric. And that's pretty formidable. But 
400 households in Victoria every day are replacing a gas appliance that's broken. So you only have to get half the people at the moment who are replacing broken things anyway to make that decision in the other direction. And we will get there well ahead of, of the 2045 date when Victoria wants to be net zero. We do have a chance to do this in a way that makes it easier and low cost for everybody and isn't inequitable. But the longer that we put off making the decision, the more those complexities will bite, the more it is going to cost everybody. Alison Reeve, thank you so much for joining the Switched On podcast today. No worries, Anne. It was fun. And Alison Reeve is the Deputy Director of the Energy and Climate Change Program at the Grattan Institute. If you'd like some more info about the myths and misinformation that the gas industry is peddling about electrification, which Alison and I briefly discussed, we've posted a few articles on the Switched On website where we've drilled down into some of the porkies they like to tell. Next time on the Switched On podcast, I'll be talking to Tim Forsey, independent energy advisor and founder of the My Efficient Electric Home Facebook group, which now has over 100,000 members. I'm Anne Delaney. I hope you can join me then. Music.